extend greetings of love and peace to all of you here at Mine Road this morning. It's a joy for my wife and I to be here with you. You may not know just very many of you here, but uh, there are a few people here who we know quite well. We've been connected with uh, Brother Roman, Sister Lucy, for, well, ever since they were newlyweds. What is it, nearly 45 years, something like that. Uh, goes back to the Faith Mission Home days when we were living and working there, and they came and served there with us. And it was a great joy, and we've enjoyed connection with them over all these years. Now their daughter, Althea, and her husband and family are living and working in Greece alongside our son, Nathaniel, and his wife and family. So we sort of have a little connection there as well. I want to thank you as a church. I believe you have taken some special interest in the work there, and we appreciate your support in that way. I <clears throat> also want to bring you greetings from the brothers and sisters at Dunmore East Christian Fellowship. As was mentioned, that's where we live in the southeastern corner of Ireland. It's been our home there for the past 27 years and uh, been a real blessing. Just curious if we can uh, ask you, how many have been in Ireland visiting the church there? Any of you there? A few of you. Thank you. Not too many. Dwight and Brenda, was it? Yes. Good to see you. Um, we knew Dwight when he was newborn, so uh, go back to those days. <clears throat> so we welcome more of you to come. Church there was started through the vision and work of Brother William McGrath, whom I'm sure some of you of my generation at least remember. And... Um, started in 92, then we moved there in 1996. It's under the direction and um, sponsorship of Mission Interest Committee, the Mission Committee of the Beachy Churches, which we appreciate their help and support. Church has grown over the years. It started quite small with just about three families, but this morning, this, today, if they're if everyone's in the church service, it's probably about 120 people. So it has really grown, especially the last few years. We give God all the glory for that, his rich blessings. It's um, a lot of work to disciple many local people and several from other European countries as well have moved in. We also have a uh, boys camp. I'm sure you've probably heard about that. Anthony may have told you about that when he was here about a year ago. Um, it's been a great blessing and outreach work of the church to try to reach the Irish people and help because there are many needs among the young people of Ireland. So um, it's been a long process to uh, get acquainted there with the social care system and so on, but we feel we're on an upward path there and um, it's going well and we thank God for his blessing there. Well, we come to uh, the Word of God now for a message from the Word. I'm going to give you um, some introductory background before I even tell you the title of the message and then the scripture. Also some history from Faith Mission Home. If you can just picture this in your mind's eye. On a lovely autumn day in uh, September of 1970, I walked into the boys' staff house at Faith Mission Home to begin my two years of 1W service. When I walked in that staff house that day, 
I was an Amish farm boy. I had barely been off the farm. Never worked anywhere else except for my parents on the home farm. Attended an Amish church where everything was in German. You, some of you would understand that. Preaching, singing, everything in German. We always went to church with a horse and buggy. We never had a car when I was at home. And um, I didn't have a driver's license. And here I walked into the staff house to work at a place where there were cars and everything was in the English language and I was expected to have devotions sometimes and so on. And you can imagine I felt a bit like a fish out of water. Whole new world that was unfamiliar to me. But I want to share with you how God provided so marvelously for me. By the grace of God, the roommate assigned to me when I entered that staff house was a young man just about my age and someone whom some of you would have known very well. His name was Ivan Beachy. I was assigned to him as a roommate. Brother Ivan took me under his arms, this newcomer who barely knew what to do, how to act, and he became probably the dearest friend I ever had. He really taught me a lot about life. Some years later, I was asked to serve as administrator of Faith Mission Home, and Brother Ivan was asked to be my assistant administrator. By that time, we were both married and had a few children, and so for some years, Ivan and I worked together in the office, and um, I could not have asked for a more faithful and loyal assistant than Brother Ivan was to me. Sometimes you hear of power struggles when two men work together, administrative roles, but I'm not sure if it would have been possible to have a power struggle with Brother Ivan. He just had a servant's heart, and you know that if you knew him. Day after day, year after year, it was a really life-changing experience. Now fast forward to a lovely spring day in May of last year when my wife and I flew from Ireland to Virginia and I stood at the coffin and saw the lifeless body of one of the dearest friends I had in this life, with whom I spent some of the best years of my life. Brother Ivan was two years younger than I am. I'm oh, sorry, two months younger than I am. Two months younger. Now he's gone to his eternal home, and I'm still here. And so with that experience, I'm using that as a springboard to share a message with you this morning. As I look out across your faces, this congregation, I don't know what your experience has been the past week or days. Some may be enjoying life to the fullest, looking forward to each new day. Others may be carrying heavy burdens, walking through valleys of grief. Maybe grieving the loss of loved ones. My wife and I just came from the funeral on Tuesday of this past week. Someone, some of you would have known, Daniel Bontrager's wife, Carolyn, was my wife's stepsister. And now Daniel is alone. That's what happens in life. And so how can we best respond 
to these situations. Ivan and I had those years. They will not come back. Daniel and Carolyn had many years together. She will not come back. How can we deal with these experiences in life? I felt God leading me to Hebrews chapter 11 to find an answer to these questions. We won't read the whole chapter, but we'll read portions of it, and you might turn there if you'd like to. You know, we often think of these people in Hebrews 11 as people with a deep faith in God, and that's true. They did have that faith, but there's a common theme, a central theme of their faith, and that is that they were convinced that what God has prepared for them in the future is so incredible that it will make the trials of this life seem as nothing as we go through life. And so the title of the message is, The Best is Yet to Come. The Best is Yet to Come. That's what I felt God was showing me as I stood by Brother Ivan's coffin and mourned the the passing of that era of my life. And I just felt God showing me that I don't need to worry about that because there's something much better coming ahead. And I bring that to all of you who are going through whatever life is bringing into your life. Yes, good seasons come and go, but there's a future awaiting every child of God that is far better than any experience, even marriage experience, which is wonderful in the Lord, and yet there's a marriage supper is coming, isn't there? A marriage of the Lamb, which we look forward to. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll have a look at a few of these people whose faith kept them going strong even when life was very difficult. In Ireland, we like to stand for the reading of the word. I don't know how you are here, but if you can, you might stand. And we'll read from Hebrews chapter 11. Begin reading in verse 6. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, if it might differ a bit from what you have. Hebrews 11, verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Now, before we read more, we'll just pause there a moment and notice. See that word impossible. It doesn't say it's difficult. It doesn't say it's unlikely. It says it's impossible. It will not happen that we can please God unless two things believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That like, sounds almost like believing that the best is yet to come, doesn't it? A rewarder of those that diligently seek him. That's the focus of this morning's message, and it's the focus of a lot of Hebrews chapter 11. Let's start with Abraham in verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out, called to go out to the place which he would afterward receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. 
Notice verse 10. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Why did Abraham do all this? He was looking for that eternal city whose builder and maker is God. Go to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. And just one more example from verse 24, talking about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. You may be seated. It's as far as I read. What mot motivated Moses to choose to suffer affliction? Choose to suffer affliction, you see that? with the people of God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin. And it mentions the treasures in Egypt. My wife and I just had the privilege of being in Egypt about six months ago with the tour group, and we saw some of the treasures, the gold, incredible treasures that they had, and buried many of them with their kings and famous people. Moses had all that, the treasures in Egypt, but he knew there was something better than that. He was looking ahead, it says, esteeming, oh, by, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? For he looked to the reward. He looked ahead. And even though he could have had everything his heart would have desired in Egypt, that wasn't enough. He wanted those eternal treasures that are laid up for those who serve God. The reward of living for God never ends. Yes, people will pass on, as some of our loved ones, some of your loved ones have. But that doesn't mean the reward is gone. That reward is laid up for us in heaven and is still coming for all of us. As we think about chapter 11 here in Hebrews and what it tells us about these people, did you notice what it tells us, what it tells us about them? I don't read a lot about their theology, about their study of Scripture, their years of study and so on. If you think about it and notice, it tells us what they did, what they did by faith. For example, Noah, he built an ark. Abraham obeyed, he went out. Um, Moses left the treasures of Egypt and were, suffered affliction with the people of God. It tells us what they did. It shows us that faith is not just something that we think in our heads, not just something that we feel in our brain. It's not something that we 
go through a course and then like some things we put a certificate on the wall. Now we've studied this, we've achieved a certain level in faith. That's not the way faith works. It's not just an academic experience or an intellectual one. True faith is something we live. We live it. It's an investment of our life. It's a surrender of our life to Christ, like these people, as they followed God's direction. It's something we live out in everyday life. You may have heard the story of an Amish man who, uh, and his evangelical friend. The evangelical man was uh, often talking about being saved and how important it is for everyone to be saved, to be born again. The Amish man, as you would know, was a bit more reserved about talking, more reserved about his faith, not as forward and openly talking about it. One day, the evangelical man asked the Amish man, "Have you been born again?" The Amish man thoughtfully stroked his beard and thought a little bit and said, "Well, you know, I could tell you anything. Why don't you ask my wife?" Ask my children. Ask my neighbors. I'd rather let them tell you whether I've been born again. That little story takes me back in my mind to Brother Ivan. I don't recall ever asking Ivan if he was born again. I didn't need to ask him. The evidence was all around. But I'll take that just a little bit further. You see... My wife and I knew Ivan and Elsie, his wife, before they were married as single young people, obviously living in the staff house with Brother Ivan. Barbara, my wife, would have lived with Elsie. We remember when Ivan and Elsie got married just a few months after we were married, and then we started having children at about the same time, and their children, our children, about the same age, and um, did many things together. Of course, with five little boys, Ivan and Elsie were an active family. <clears throat> she was a hard-working mother of five young boys. But then something happened. Something happened that changed their lives in a very dramatic way. Sister Elsie became very, very sick. In fact, so sick that she was not expected to live. I remember being in the hospital room when she was with the family, when she was in intensive care and uh, her life hanging in the balance. Very difficult time for the family and for all of us. But God was merciful and spared her life. She's still with us today. But from that time on, Strelsa was very limited in what she could do. She needed a lot of help, even in her personal care and her household work. So for nearly 30 years, dear brother Ivan would get up every morning and he would help his wife with her personal care. I believe he put up her hair. He would do much of the housework and he pushed her in her wheelchair wherever she went. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that. And he did it all with a smile. We never heard brother Ivan complain a word. So if you would have asked Sister Elsie if her husband is born again, what do you think she would have said? Maybe something like, if you want to see a person's life that shows the fruit of the Holy Spirit, my, my husband's life is the best example you'll ever see. And certainly that was true. Ivan just had a testimony of life that was 
matched by very few people I have known. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't have a verbal testimony for the Lord. I'm sure there's important times for that. But I'm saying that when my verbal testimony of being saved does not match up, is not backed up with what my wife and children and neighbors see, then something is not adding up. My faith is open to question, isn't it? If my words and my life don't agree, don't match up together, because true faith is revealed by the way we live. True faith takes God at his word and willing to do what he asks us to do, to live according to his word. It's a response of my heart to God that completely changes the way we live our life when we really bank our life on the word of God. Because you see, we don't just think our faith, we don't just talk about it, we live our faith. I didn't say we should live our faith. I said we live our faith. We do. Our life reveals our faith. If we truly believe what the Bible says, then the, our life will reveal that. We'll live for those eternal values. As we saw in Hebrews 11, one of the clearest evidence of our faith is shown by how much value we place on living for those things which will last for eternity. Apostle Paul's life and testimony is such a clear example of that. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 4, and we'll just read a few verses here to notice how Paul focused on the future 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. We're all growing older, you know. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are, are eternal. We see how Paul is basing the fact of not losing heart, not becoming discouraged, on the promise of the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That is up ahead on that eternal shore where so many of our loved ones have already gone. We can see right here where Paul's mind was focused. He believed that the best is yet to come, didn't he? He was saying he went through all these things. In fact, so strongly that he says his sufferings are light affliction, which is but for a moment. This was a man who was beaten with rods nearly to death, who was stoned and left for dead, who sat in cold, dark prisons with chains around his ankles, and was often criticized by people, even in the church. But he says it's just light affliction for a moment because his focus was up ahead there on that eternal glory. So I wonder, this morning as we look at life, we look at difficulties that we go through. Sometimes things don't work out like we hoped they would. Sometimes it seems other people have much 
easier life than we do. They get the blessings. Sometimes we get tired of standing for truth when it seems a whole flow of culture around us. It's almost like a mighty river sweeping along everybody in there in its powerful currents. And we try to keep swimming against the current, against the flow of the world around us. May God help us to open our eyes that we can see the eternal value, the eternal glory that is up ahead. Don't become discouraged. Don't let it get you down. And so when I think of my dear brother Ivan, all that he suffered, especially the last few years of his life, he was fighting the cancer that was invading his body. And I think of the Apostle Paul and all that he suffered, and yet he called it light affliction. It's almost like someone putting his arm across my shoulder and saying, look up there, look up there. The best is yet to come. I could put my arms around your shoulder. I would do that, just point up there. The best is yet to come. The incredible future that God has in store for all of us. Yes, there are sad times. There are hard times. And they'll not come back. My years with Brother Ivan won't come back. But I trust I will see him again in a better place where there'll be no more cancer and there'll be no more funerals and hospitals. Praise the Lord. Are you, are you looking forward? I trust you are. And it gives us strength. It gives us courage to live faithfully for the Lord. You notice here in this verse 18, I take it like a motto, a life motto for my life. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. The things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. We might think we live here a long time. My own father lived for 93 years, and he had a busy, full life. He visited many churches. And that seems like a long time, especially to you children. Can you imagine living 93 years? But you know what? He's gone. This verse says, the things which are seen are temporary. That means they're just for a while, and then they'll pass on. That's the way our life is, and your life is, and everything we see here. It's temporary. It might last 100 years, but that's not very long compared to eternity, just like the blink of an eye. Things which are not seen are eternal. And now my father, like many of your loved ones and parents, are over there on that shore. To remind ourselves what's actually waiting us, I'd like to turn yet to one more scripture, and that's in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, almost the last chapter, chapter 21. And let's just refresh our minds on what really is waiting for us over there. Revelation 21, again reading in verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. 
And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John gives us here a glimpse of the beauty and the glory of this wonderful place that is being prepared for us and that we will enjoy one day if we love him, if our name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And now we would be remiss, we'd be failing in our duty as we talk so much about the wonderful future for those who love God. If we would leave the implication that that is a future for everybody. And in fact, if you notice, John reminds us here, he talks about how wonderful that place was that God showed to him. But then that last verse, but there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is your name in the Lamb's book of life this morning? God's word makes it clear that for those whose name is not there, not the best, we, won't, we can't say, the best is yet to come. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Some people who are living for the pleasures of this world, perhaps like Demas, who we heard about this morning, who loved this present world. Instead of the best being yet to come, the worst is yet to come, and by far the worst. Just to uh, help us remember this, I'd like to share with you yet a story, a true story, Something that happened to a couple he was invited to a very special wedding. We don't know the couple personally, but we've met the man who writes about it in a book that he wrote about heaven. Stories about a lady named Ruth Anna Metzger. She was a professional singer. She was asked to sing at the wedding of a very wealthy couple. And according to the invitation they received, the reception would be held on the top two floors of Seattle's Columbia. Columbia Tower in Seattle, Washington, the tallest skyscraper in the Northwest. Ruth Anna and her husband, as anyone would be, were very excited about attending this special wedding. After the wedding service and the ceremony was over and she sang the part that she had been asked to sing, everyone moved on over to the tower where the reception was going to take place and they went up in the in the lift, in Ireland we call an elevator a lift, and um, got out on the top floor and were sort of mingling around and soon someone announced that the wedding meal is ready. So Ruth Anna and her husband went to the door to go into that room. There was a person at the door checking who's coming in, the guests greeting them and checking their names on the guest list that they had. So when they came to the door, he asked for their names. She said, I'm Ruth Anna Mesker, and this is my husband, Roy. And um, he searched up and down the list, a list of names, and he looked and he said, um, I'm not finding your name. Would you spell it, please? 
So she spelled out her name, and uh, he searched again, and he said, I'm sorry, your name is not on this list. But she said, uh, there has to be a mistake. I'm the singer. I sang at the wedding service. The gentleman answered and he said, it doesn't matter who you are or what you did. If your name is not on this list, you cannot enter this banquet and be at the, the wedding feast. So he motioned to the waiter there and he said, uh, show these people to the elevator, to the lift, and um, help them out. In stunned unbelief, they followed this waiter, got into the lift and went down to the parking garage and went to their car. As they had followed this man, they saw the most lavish feast spread out they had ever seen and an orchestra of singers and they just were stunned at what they were missing got in their car and they drove, started driving, and Roy reached over and put his hand on his wife's arm and said, uh, Sweetheart, what happened? And through her tears, Ruthanna replied, When the invitation, invitation came, I was busy. I never bothered to send it in, the response card because after all I was the singer surely I could go into the banquet without returning the response card and she just wept and wept not only because she had missed the most lavish banquet she had ever been invited to because she was a Christian, she suddenly had a small taste of what it will be like someday for people as they stand before Christ and find their names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And so, my dear friends, this morning, throughout the ages, many people have been too busy to respond to the invitation to the marriage feast of the Lamb that we read about in the book of Revelation. And you know, many people assume that the good things they have done, or maybe their name, uh, heritage, an important name, will be enough. Surely they can enter heaven. But make no mistake, people who do not respond to Christ's invitation to repent of their sin to have their sins forgiven by the blood of Christ that was shed for the remission of our sins. Those are people whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And here's a serious part of this tragic story and this analogy. If we are denied entrance to heaven's wedding banquet, we will not just be ushered down to our car to leave. It will be far, infinitely worse than that. To be denied entrance to heaven's banquet will mean being cast outside into hell. That's what Jesus said. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There won't be a second chance. 
There'll never be any other opportunity like that. The Bible tells us today is the day of salvation. We're not promised tomorrow. Tomorrow may be too late. So I just ask you this morning, are you trusting in the blood of Christ? Have you responded to that invitation to spend eternity with him? And then as we stand at the coffins of dear little ones, it's not an eternal farewell, but it's a goodbye until we meet on the other shore. Heaven's gates will open to us and truly far beyond what we can ask or think, the best is yet to come when we are living for him. May that encourage you, brothers and sisters, as we continue the path of life that God has ordained for us, whether it's joy, keep still keep that in mind, it's temporary. Whether it's sorrow and grief and heavy burdens, it's also temporary because there's a better place coming. Praise the Lord. We thank him. Maybe we can kneel together in prayer at this time. Mm -hmm.